I'm Beth Bennett. This is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. Today is Tuesday, June 7, 2022. Coming up, we hear about one functional medicine practitioner's experience with a serious heart attack and his exploration in alternative therapies. Dr. Stephen Hussey trained and worked as a chiropractor, giving him plenty of insight into the potential risks of the type 1 diabetes he had had since childhood. His adult lifestyle was built around preventing heart disease, a common complication of diabetes. Nonetheless, at age 34, he suffered a serious blockage. During his recovery, he discovered that following the standard of care laid out for him by the attending cardiologist contradicted everything he'd learned about the heart. His book is an account of the understanding he developed of the cardiovascular system and the recovery protocol that he developed to return to health. Spoiler alert, some of his material flies in the face of current medical dogma, and I don't agree with all of his talking points, but I do believe that science is always changing and we should look critically at new hypotheses. Here's Stephen Hussey. Welcome to the show, Stephen. I'm talking to Dr. Stephen Hussey, who's book, Understanding the Heart, Surprising Insights into the Evolutionary Origins of Heart Disease and Why It Matters, was recently released. So Stephen, you're a medical professional with years of treating patients. And as you write in the introduction to your book, you experienced a major heart attack, aka myocardial infarct, not long ago. Can you talk about how that experience shaped your subsequent practice and lifestyle and ultimately gave rise to the book? Yeah. So I ended up with autoimmune type one diabetes, which heavily predisposes me to heart disease. And, you know, despite all my efforts uh, to prevent um, heart disease, I, yeah, I did have a heart attack um, in January, uh, 2020. Um, And, you know, at first, you know, I had done all this research on, on the heart and I was preparing this book and, and I thought, you know, I've had a heart attack. I can't, I can't release this book. Like no one will listen to me. Like obviously, um, you know, I, I can't be speaking about this, but then my experience, um, in the hospital recovering from the heart attack, um, kind of shifted my thinking and made me realize that, um, the, the approach to preventing heart disease, um, I think is, is really short-sighted when it comes to Western medicine. And I felt like there's no way I couldn't release this information because I do think it's, it's very, um, important to share information and share different ideas. And based on the care I received in the hospital, those three days after I had a heart attack, I felt like I still needed to release this, this information. And to be honest with you, there's, there's not a thing in the book that, um, I've, I've changed, uh, based on me having a heart attack, but yeah, I really haven't changed much about clinical practice or much about my ideas because all the research in the book doesn't change just because I had a, a heart attack. Um, and I just really want to share my experience and what I learned and what I gained from it for others, because there's going to be others in the same situation. I am trying to make the same decisions I was, and I want people to have all the information. Yeah, I think that's great. I totally agree with you that there's so much in Western medicine that doesn't reflect current research um, information. In fact, in many cases, there's a 10 to 20 year lag between what's found out in uh, academic and clinical research and what get filters down to what we call the bedside or to clinical practice. 
and so you have so much good information so let's let's start with some of the evolutionary background because um i was trained as an evolutionary biologist and so i love talking about this and there's um it's just some interesting ideas about human evolution that, as you say, predispose us to issues with our hearts. We are living different than we lived for millions of years um, once, you know, modern humans evolved, but even before modern humans evolved, um, you know, those those things that are still in us today are there. And the way there are many of the ways that we live our life today um, create an imbalance because of those evolutionarily ingrained um, um, I guess, physiology that we have. Um, and so, you know, specifically I talk about, you know, mitochondria and how the mitochondria developed um, and how they became part of, of cells um, and what they do for us today. And then I go into the things that we may be doing today um, that are creating damaged mitochondria or inefficiently working mitochondria. And those could be toxin exposures. It could be poor diet. Um, it could be, um, in, like, you know, stress, um, you know, psychological stress, things like that. And then I talk about, you know, the, the actual stress response of humans and how that developed and how it's different um, in, in mammals compared to, you know, beings that evolved before mammals um, and, you know, we're mammals. So that, that, um, that uh, stress response system and how our body perceives and then handles stress is still, um, for the most part, ingrained in us today. And so then we put ourselves into a society where there's all these unnatural stressors um, or we have this higher level of thinking um, that, you know, humans can think their way into a stress response and, and um, other, other living things can't really do that. Um, we have this, this large brain that um, has gotten us a lot of places, but has also within modern society causes some issues as far as that stress response. And then I also talk about, you know, the diet that, you know, I think pushed um, uh, for the evolution or, or it's one of the things that pushed for the evolution of, of modern humans today, which was a a very animal-based diet um, doesn't have, doesn't mean that we know that it was 100% animal-based or 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 the right percentages, but it was evident that we were eating lots of animal foods. So, you know, how could a food that is is um, uh, that you know helped you know create and it pushed evolution toward modern humans be a food that's also all of a sudden causing disease um, like heart disease, like red meat and saturated fat? How are those things? causing heart disease if it's what pushed us to become human, especially when heart disease and the epidemic we know it today is a very new thing. Um, and humans have been eating those types of foods for a very long time. So, um, so yeah, I go into that kind of stuff um, and kind of use this, you know, how life developed and what, you know, brought us up to modern humans as, as uh, this kind of baseline for understanding the imbalances that we see today that contribute to heart disease. Right. And these balances and imbalances are shifting all the time because, um, like you mentioned, our environment has changed so much, especially in modern times. And if we think about our evolutionary past, the role of diet clearly contributed, for instance, to the evolution of our big brains. Like we started cooking our food and that made nutrients much more available. The, the role of meat is kind of confusing. I mean, it's so hard to say from fossils what our ancestors ate. And in modern day hunter gatherers, there's so much variation, but humans are so adaptable and we respond to different environments in different ways. And there's one thing that I find intriguing is there's a lot of new research on the microbiome that shows or illustrates that adaptability. So like in the hunter gatherer tribe, the Hadza in, I believe they're in Kenya, um, they go, but they shift between 
a high proportion of meat in their diet during the dry season. And then in the wet season, they go to more berries and honey and tubers and things like that. And their microbiome flip-flops completely, which is something that we see in um, industrialized countries that our microbiome reflects our diet as well. And even between different people, like you and I might have really different microbiomes, even though we might eat a similar diet. And those microbes in our gut can really influence um, our health outcomes. So for instance, one of the things that you talk about in your book that I think people should be aware of is that um, a compound in meat called carnitine, it's present in all animal tissues, um, can be broken down by certain bacteria in our guts to produce something that's harmful. But if you eat a diet that fosters a microbiome that doesn't do that, then you wouldn't have a problem with that. So I, th I thought that was cool because I just came across that um, research about the effect of the microbiome on this, this breakdown compound. It's called TMAO for the listeners that are interested. And so maybe you could talk a little bit about how your diet reflects um, that. Yeah, so I think, first of all, I think it's incredibly short-sighted um, to, to take one metabolite that the body makes or that the microbiome makes and, and to say that this is what's causing disease because um, we have a very complex biological ecosystem that is the human body, that is living things. And that's what I think of one of the major flaws of, 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 of modern medicine is that we try and take these individual metabolites like a cholesterol molecule or measuring that in the blood um, and say that that's this contributing, this is the sole reason we have disease. Um, so just like with TMAO, yes, we, we can, you know, with the wrong microbiome, we can, you know, break that, or we can break down carnitine or, or different metabolites. And, and we can come up with these metabolites that seem to be harmful, so to speak, quote unquote. Um, but I think that that's just really not appreciating the complexity that is the human body. Um, and, and, and then there's just all, there's also just, um, you know, a lot of wishy-washy uh, things that people say, you know, they say that, um, you know, that, that red meat is bad for you. And one of the reasons is because you break down this carnitine and it makes TMAO, but they don't, they neglect to, to say that fish actually makes insane levels of TMAO in the body. Um, and they say that that's heart healthy, you know, and that's not the cause of heart disease. And so it's just a little backwards there. And, um, and, and so that's kind of my, I, I kind of, I'm a little bit humble before nature. Um, I like looking into all these things, but when I, when someone gets so focused on one metabolite and they're saying that this is, this is causing disease and red meat is why that's happening to me, they're just pushing, um, you know, a certain, um, idea that they have and they're stuck on that idea. They're not looking, they're not stepping back and looking at the big picture that, um, we have to, we have to be humble before nature. And, and so I, my big thing with, with red meat is that, uh, I don't think that um, everyone should eat all red meat or that I, I don't necessarily think that um, we know exactly that how much, you know, humans ate in the past. And obviously you, you brought up examples of, of how people um, different, you know, hunter gatherer people totally shift their diet and their microbiome changes. And that's, that's just an incredible example of the adaptability of humans. It's one of the reasons why we've been so successful as a species is because we've been able to adapt to those different things because it's not about plants versus animals, which I really don't like that argument. Um, I think it's about eating a diet that creates metabolic health. Um, my, my main goal is, is to stop the bashing of red meat and saturated fat because those are incredibly useful nutrients, um, essential nutrients, in my opinion, um, for human health. And in a, in a society that is very um, overfed, but undernourished, 
those foods are an incredible food source and we need to stop scaring people away from them because they're not the cause of disease. Um, it doesn't mean that um, I'm against all certain diets. I think there's multiple diets that create health and we have to focus on that and stop um, being dogmatic about certain diets or certain foods or whatever. Yeah, I absolutely agree about the complexity and adaptability of our systems and that we shouldn't demonize any particular food group. They all have certain values. I think the big issue, and you do raise this in your book too, is that of processing. So you could mm. eat healthful red meat from say grass-fed beef or organically raised animals. Um, and that would be a completely different experience for your body than eating, you know, McDonald's burgers. Um, yeah. So actually research kind of, I mean, when you look at the nutrient content of, of grass fed versus grain fed or, or, um, or like industrial raised meat, it's not really that much different. Um, now there's like the toxicity issue. There's probably more toxins in the industrial raised ones. And there's the issue that, you know, industrial raised meat and concentrated animal feeding operation meat is incredibly bad for the environment. It's incredibly inhumane for the animal. Um, so there's all those aspects of, of food as well. But when you look at it from a like a, um, a nutrient standpoint, it's it's fairly the same. Um, the, the, there's maybe a little bit more omega three in the grass fed, um, but other than that, it's it's not too much different. So, and and there may be more toxins, like I said, um, which is things you want to avoid. So, um, so yeah, I mean, it, it, yeah, there's there's many different. It's not just nutrients when we talk about food. There's many different things you got to think about. Yeah, actually, I'm going to push back a little bit on that because one of the um, one of my collaborators who I've, I've interviewed on this show in the past, you might know his work, Fred Provenza. He's from the University of Utah. He and his colleagues have been doing metabolomics and um, also looking at the breakdown products via using these metabolomic assays, which is using a, a mass spec which analyzes and identifies a huge variety of different compounds. And they're, they're finding that in grass-fed and especially in animals and different animals, beef, bison, um, goat, lamb, that are raised on wild forage, there's a huge variety of naturally occurring phytochemicals. These are chemicals derived from plants that have health benefits and different kinds of effects on the microbiome as well. They're finding those are incredibly higher in these naturally raised animals. And they're almost, these compounds are almost non-existent in um, animals that are raised in feedlots. Yeah, so and that would make sense because yeah, you yeah. grass-fed animals eating those phytochemicals, whereas the grain-fed lots exactly. are not eating those phytochemicals. That would make complete sense. Um, I, I would make an argument that the phytochemicals aren't as beneficial as they're touted as being. Um, I think the main reason that we get um, I don't think they're harmful, but I, I, I think the main reason that we get benefit from phytochemicals is they create a hormetic stress, um, which is um, that like when we introduce a toxin to the system, the body responds, the liver makes more antioxidants um, in response to that little stress and ends up being a net positive thing um, because we get more antioxidant production. Um, and so it looks like these phytochemicals are antioxidants when in reality it's just, it's just um, spurning the body to make more antioxidants of its own which is still a good thing. Hormetic stress is always a good thing. There's different ways you can get hormetic stresses. Um, to me, based on the evidence that I've seen, I think the, the, um, the absolute, you, you know, like benefit of, uh, phytochemicals is, is, um, I think we, I think we misunderstand the benefit of them or how they benefit us, I should say. Um, and, uh, and so like, that's just something I like, I like to point out, you know, 
Yeah, I and I agree. I think that hormesis is incredibly important. And in fact, um, much of, like you said, much of our antioxidant response is due to the fact that our mitochondria um, and other systems less so produce harmful oxygen-free radicals. And then in response, the body produces antioxidants that are protective. So we got to have that hormesis stress in life or we're not going to have the protective response, which is really important, as you say, in the heart, because the heart is so full of mitochondria that our muscles in our heart are constantly contracting, producing what would otherwise be incredibly harmful levels of oxygen-free radicals. Yeah, the heart is one of the most metabolically active um, organs and tissues in the body. Um, so it's incredibly important to keep those mitochondria healthy um, because they're very concentrated in those in those um, heart cells. Um, yeah, I mean, the heart is constantly contracting. Um, and so it's, it's using up a lot of energy and the efficiency of those cells to contract is dependent on the, the ability of mitochondria to make that energy. Um, so we want to keep them healthy. Um, we want to keep um, like, so in the process of, of burning any, any, any fuel source, you're going to make an exhaust product. You're going to make a waste product. Exactly. And that is, um, there's lots of different waste products, you know, CO2, we breathe that out. There's water that it makes, uh, which your body can use that water, um, but also free radicals. It makes free radicals, um, which are molecules with unpaired electrons that can cause damage to other body or tissues in the body. But they're also signaling molecules. They're not all evil. You know, they, they play a, a role in our bodies. Um, they signal for satiation and things like that. Um, but when they get too many, yes, we can get overwhelmed, which can damage the mitochondria that, that, um, that made them, you know, and then without functioning mitochondria, um, we can't respirate, you know, we can't use oxygen, um, to burn a fuel source and that causes all kinds of issues. Yeah. So in increasing the amount of antioxidants that we, that we have to, to take care of those free radicals is incredibly important. Um, but also decreasing the amount of, of free radicals you produce in the first place is really important, which is, you know, not getting toxin exposure, burning very efficient fuel sources, which to me is, is fatty acids and ketones are more efficient than glucose, even though your body's burning, um, all of them all the time. Um, but things like that, you know, you want to, not only do you want to, you know, decrease the, or, you know, eliminate them with antioxidant production, but you want to decrease the amount of free radicals you produce in the first place. Right. And going back to the heart, um, you have a really interesting idea about the actual function of the heart. So I'd like to talk about that too, because most people, myself included, tend to think of the heart as a pump, but you have an alternative hypothesis. Could you expand on that? Yeah, you know, if people notice, you know, I say like the heart's contracting. I don't say the heart is is pumping because the muscle is contracting. But um, yeah, there's actually a substantial amount of of evidence and research out there that suggests um, that the heart is not the main mover of the blood in the body. Um, that it it does enough um, quote unquote pumping to kind of move the blood through the chambers of the heart. But there's really no way that um, based on the efficiency of it and based on the power that it create it could it could move the blood throughout the entire body. Um, and you know, there is, there is like obviously contraction of muscle that helps blood flow and there's, um, and there's, you know, one way valves in the veins that prevent, you know, backflow and that kind of stuff. But, um, one of the, like there's, there's this research coming out of the lab of Gerald Pollack and others before him about how, you know, the, the blood can actually flow on its own, um, by creating an energy gradient, um, when the water in the blood actually structures itself onto the lining of the artery. Um, and the way that it stretches out, the way that it forms itself onto the lining of the artery, um, think of it more like a gel. It's called this force phase water. 
Um, it's not solid, not liquid, but it's more of a gel um, that forms there. It protects the lining of the artery, but also creates an energy gradient that creates flow. Um, and they've actually, um, they've shown this in the arteries of chick embryos um, in his lab that when the heart stops and they provide energy to the water and the blood that it, it does create flow um, and it will, will flow indefinitely as long as they keep energy into the system. Um, and so, yeah, the, the heart is more of this vortexing organ that helps energize the water in the blood so that it can form that structured water on the lining of the artery. Um, and also it's a, it's, um, it's a, it's placed in the middle there of the arteries and the veins so that it can actually help maintain pressure between the two. Um, because there are certain situations like during exercise, when all the blood would want to go to the arterial side and the venous side would collapse. And so the heart is actually there slowing the flow of blood during um, doing exercise so that it can maintain pressure between the two systems so that one side doesn't collapse and we don't, we don't die from that. So, um, so yeah, lots of interesting stuff we could, we could dive into there. Yeah. I remember reading about this fourth state of water years ago when it first came out, I was actually in graduate school and teaching about the structure of water and it was kind of a revelation to me. I hadn't heard anything further. So um, this was the first time I'd read about it in the context of the circulatory system. How might this idea um, affect clinical practice in terms of dealing with heart and cardiovascular health? This layer is also protective in nature because it's called exclusion zone water too, because when it forms very few, if anything, uh, molecules and things can get through it. Um, the only real things are small hydrated ions um, that can that can penetrate it. And so when it is formed and um, intact, it does provide protection to the lining of the artery and damage to the lining of an artery is what initiates um, you know, the process of atherosclerosis or hardening of the arteries. And so if we do things that help um, you know, the structured water form on the lining of the arteries, we're actually providing some protection. So that's, that's one thing. But the other thing is heart failure. So you know, it's assumed in certain circles that, you know, the, the heart is what's pumping this blood throughout the body. And in heart failure, the heart is failing to do that. And so we're getting pulling up, pulling up of blood or pulling up of fluid, you know, in the extremities. And um, we're getting an enlarged heart because it's, it's, uh, um, it's getting more pressure in it. And it's, it's, um, instead of being shaped like a football, it starts to shape more like a basketball. Um, and it stretches out a little bit. Um, but if we, if we think about this idea that the heart is not the main mover of the blood, then, then when those things happen, it's not the heart's fault in this context. It's actually the heart is being forced to be more of a pump than it's designed to be. And that's, what's creating these issues because this mechanism within the arteries that is getting blood to flow is actually breaking down and we're not getting that intact fourth phase water in the lining of the arteries. And we start to see pooling up of, of fluid in the extremities, which is characteristic of, of heart failure. Um, and also an enlarged, um, or, or I guess a, a change in the structure of the heart, um, because there's more pressure in it as it's being forced to, you know, this, at this point, quote unquote pump. Um, and so that puts strain on the heart and we call that heart failure. And we blame the heart when in reality, we should be looking elsewhere for the causes of heart failure. And the reason that this, um, is pretty solidified for me is the fact that when you look at the research on infrared sauna, because infrared light is one of the best ways to energize water in the blood. Um, so that it energizes water in general, so that it forms structured water and perpetuates blood flow. Um, when you look at the research on infrared sauna and heart failure, it's absolutely amazing. Um, when right, people... there's so much good data on saunas and their protective effects. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. And this is one of the mechanisms by which it works. Right, um, right. And so, yeah. and so it makes complete sense to me that that's what's going on.
right? So, in, but going back to our evolutionary past, we humans didn't have saunas in the distant past. What what about a healthful lifestyle could promote that exclusion zone and that protective role of the four state of water in our arteries? Yeah. So, I mean, the original source of infrared light was the sun. I mean, 40% of the sun's rays are, are infrared. And so, you know, humans evolved out in nature, out in the sun, you know, um, and so that's that's one way that uh, this mechanism uh, and it makes sense with that exposure that, you know, evolution would have, you know, developed some mechanism to use that that stimulus, that infrared light, um, but also being in contact with the earth, you know, the right electromagnetic fields um, will definitely help energize and structure water, um, but also drinking water that is structured um, or is energized, not structured necessarily, but energized um, is also very helpful. And so like throughout our evolutionary past, we were drinking water from, you know, um, uh, running water from streams and, um, and, um, uh, what's the word? Um, uh, I can't think of the word like a, a spring, you know, mm-hmm. um, things like that. And so, you know, when, when water comes out of a spring from the earth, it's been, um, it's been energized. And when water flows past a rock and creates a little eddy or goes over rapids and things, that's that vortexing uh, in the presence of oxygen is energizing the water. And so we would have been drinking that type of water, been exposed to the sun, been in contact with the earth uh, more so than we are in today's modern world. Thank you for the time that you've taken today. Yeah, of course. Thanks for having me on. I was speaking with Dr. Stephen Hussey about his recent book, Understanding the Heart, Surprising Insights into the Evolutionary Origins of Heart Disease and Why It Matters. He lays out a comprehensive vision of the cardiovascular system and alternative therapies for heart disease. I'll link to his book in the show notes. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is Joel Parker, and I produce this week's show. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music, The Flight of the Bumblebee, by Rimsky-Korsakoff. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes and links mentioned today. Questions or comments, call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Beth Bennett.